Hey everyone, and welcome to the Master Retention Podcast, brought to you by UserWise, the live ops engine for your game. Today we have a fantastic guest on our show. Uh, we have Maria Gillis, who is a product manager over at Hutch, um, and she's also the uh, host of the Metacast Podcast. So if any of you uh, have listened to the, the Metacast Podcast, uh, her voice may sound really familiar to you. Today, Tom and Maria are going to be talking about defining the product management role. Uh, a product manager can be a lot of things, depending on what your uh, studio needs. Um, but there's no doubt that a product manager is really important for things to, to, to run smoothly. So they're going to be talking about the importance of product managers, uh, finding the right product manager for your company if you're searching for one currently, or just be prepared for when you may need that role to be filled, and really what their role should look like, and a whole lot more. Uh, so sit back and relax, turn up the volume, and I'll hand it off to Tom and Maria. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Super exciting podcast. This is the first time we're using the, the Riverside uh, recording thing, so hopefully it's working really well. And we have another podcast host with us, uh, Miss Maria um <laughs> from the, the hello. metacast hello maria um yeah thank you so much for joining us today um we're going to talk all about gaming product managers today i think so it's, it's gonna be a really really good one um but before we delve into that i always like to ask what's your story like how'd you get into making games gosh my story how long can i take telling it i'll try to keep it to two minutes just speak through it <laughs> love it <laughs> uh so i grew up in portugal and there's not much of a gaming industry there so i never really thought it was an option for me um so i went in a completely different career track i worked in fisheries for a bit like for about four years i was doing sales and just helping manage fishing vessel repairs and so at one point i decided i wanted to try to maybe one day get into games and i knew that was going to take quite a long time because i knew nothing about technology I, you know i studied graphic design and so um i was actually unemployed for about half a year just sending out cvs um trying to get a tech company in portugal to hire me to do biz dev Fortunately, after a few scam interviews with some shady companies, I managed to land a great job um, in a tech consultancy company. And that brought me to London. I entered a financial regulation AI technology. I met someone who used to work at Jagex, and that's how I got into games. I became a product manager for the publishing platform at Jagex. And that led me to today where i'm a product manager for a game a hutch ah what game is that top drives an excellent game highly recommend go and see it it's very tell, unique tell us more about it yeah what is top drives for people that haven't played it it's a card collection game um and you have five opponent cards so they're all based on real cars real stats and you play your hand against opponents and then it it does simulations of the race like all based on physics like as close as we can um, reinterpret them in a game and then also based on the stats and the performance of the cars you have different types of tracks to test different aspects of of the car it was really fun i i never played i didn't even know it existed to be honest until i played it because i'm not much into cars so i think yep. user acquisition never picked me um <laughs> yes yeah, it's, it's really really fun that's great um cool 
Um, okay. So we're gonna talk about product managers today. Um, and I feel like different companies, especially in gaming have different names for what they do. So can you clarify when you say product manager, like what does that actually mean? That's a really good question. And it's not only in games. I found <laughs> it's just tech in general. And I'll try to, I will share what I think it is and how, how I see the role. If you ask different people, different companies, they'll probably say something a little bit different. So I think first there's something that's a bit confusing out there, which is product manager and then product owner. And that's been a huge debate and many companies that I've worked in on what each of those roles do. I personally just say a product owner is a product manager that's working in scrum and uh, scrum.org. Why did you bring yet another name for product management? <laughs> so I think product managers work at the intersection of business design and technology. So you have to understand all of those different pillars. And I think the thing that I love about product management and makes me excited to do my work every day is that you get to work at very high level for the product, but also quite detailed. And so you can be talking about the, you can be aligning with the product director on what the vision of the product is, discussing the strategies, so how your strategic pillars, understanding problems in the market or pain points or opportunities, um, creating a roadmap to deliver that strategy, and then like, going into feature design. It, it depends on the company how involved the product manager is at all of these different levels. And so I think that's one of the most important things when trying to find a role in product management is knowing what do you like to do? Um, what do you see the role as? And then try to find a company where you can fit with that. Interesting. Um, so specifically inside games, how many product managers should a game have? Is it one product manager? Is it multiple product managers? Is there a distinction of when you need more than one? Oh, that's very, it depends. I, anytime <laughs> I hear a podcast and you ask a difficult question and then the guest says, oh, it depends. I always get triggered. So I'm very sorry, <laughs> listeners, if I just triggered you. <laughs> so, um, I think that is also, that comes down to you as a product manager, what kind of environment you like to work on. So when I was working at Jagex on the publishing platform, we were a team of four product managers and a product director. And it worked very well because we each had ownership over a section of the product. There was a PM for accounts, there was a PM for e-commerce, there was a PM for game services and a PM for, for data. I think it gets a little bit trickier when working on a game where you don't have clear areas of, of, of ownership because product managers like responsibility and they like to own and experiment like with the strategy and be able to make decisions. And so if you don't have those clear areas of responsibility and you have a lot of product managers, it can become a situation of too many cooks and you don't really have the opportunity to have a vision and lead that vision as a PM. Mm. So I think it really comes down to the company. How big is the game? You could have a product, if, if it's a big game, you could have a product manager for the quests. Um, just like narrative content for players to go through. You could have a product manager for live ops. You could have a product manager for new skills or something like that. 
Um, if it's a small game, I think it becomes difficult to have multiple multiple PMs. But yeah, it, it depends on the structure. So so maybe I'll I'll ask a few more questions and okay. we can see if we can suss out a, a little bit more info here. Um, so maybe taking a step back and think about it in a different way. What, in your opinion, is the ideal high-performing product management team? Like, how should you combine a game director and a product manager? Mm. There's a lot of information out there. And from from what I've experienced and, and also learned so far is that there are many archetypes of product managers out there. And the best high-performing team usually mixes product managers with different strong suits. And it also depends on having the fit of the product manager and their skills and what drives them with the maturity of the product. So I the key, the key pillars are understanding engineering, being um, comfortable with data and getting insights from data, understanding business strategy, and also understanding design. And within games, I include both UX and also game design, really. And then usually product managers have a very strong suit out of those four. So for example, mine, I believe, is the business strategy side of it. But I work with a, a PM colleague, and his strong suit is um, data, because we have completely different backgrounds. And then you usually have a second strong suit out of those four. And personally, I believe you achieve the best results when, for example, you're pairing, if it's a game, a game director and a product manager, pairing the two who have different strong suits to get the best results. And in terms of the archetypes of the product maturity, it takes very different product mindsets to build a completely new product versus building, um, sorry, continuing to grow an existing product versus having a product that's reaching its peak of maturity and you're trying to find the next thing to bring it back to the beginning stages of, of the maturity. And so I think you have to find the, what drives the person so that they're passionate about what they're doing and how their brain works when thinking about like what's best for the product. Interesting. Very interesting. I like that. Okay. Um, a couple more questions related to product managers here. Um, what are good product management traits that you should look for in a person or maybe you might uncover in yourself and you never realize that you'd be a good product manager? Like mm. what, what sort of traits should a product manager have? That's a good question. I actually think because nowadays you, you don't have a degree really in product management. Mm. I think there are some universities now in the United States are starting to do it, but no one really has like biology instead of biology, you have product management. <laughs> and I, I just stumbled into the role. I was actually working with someone when I was in the FinTech company. Um, someone in leadership just walked up to me one day and said, you'd be a great product manager. You should go and check it out. And so that's how I found out that this exists as a role and it's great. And so, um, when looking for people entering the role the, I think there are definitely some traits that if you see in someone, you can think, okay, maybe we should introduce them to what product management is because they might enjoy it and be really good at it. I think one of them is just natural curiosity and you always want to know why you always want to know more. You, 
don't take things for granted. Like if you see a behavior of a user, if you see a piece of data, you always want to go and find out why that's happening. So just that curiosity of always wanting to uncover. I think a second trait is being opinionated, to be honest, <laughs> because you have to you have to create hypotheses. And I think the interesting thing is I have to find someone who is opinionated, balanced with wanting to prove themselves wrong. I think that's the powerful combination for a great product manager, because you're constantly thinking about, oh, maybe this is because of that. But now I want to actually go and try to find out if, if I'm wrong. Mm. Do you think, and this is more for my edification because I apparently became a product manager too, and I had no idea that I was doing that. Um, but I've always had this ability, um, and I think it really came to light when I took, so I was actually going to school to uh, become a doctor, um, and I was taking a human physiology class. Um, and I had this uncanny ability to like always keep the big picture of like the human being in mind, but I could narrow in on any like minute detail of like the human body and like what this gland did and how it interacted with all these other pieces. And I could always zoom back out and see how everything was kind of interrelated, but I could zoom really in on those like minute details. And I knew all the depth of it. And something about my mind is just wired of like, if that information ties together like that, it sticks with me really well. Now, if it's just like random information, I'm terrible with it, like names and, and things. Uh, terrible. Um, but I'm curious, like as a PM, should you be able to like have this combination of big picture mindset, but also like dig down to the minute details? Yeah. One, 100%. Yeah. You have to be able to switch between the two very quickly, I find. And it, I think it's something that can be trained, but I think that's yet another trait. Like if you see someone is capable of having that kind of thinking and just zooming in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out, find correlations, find um, pulling pulling information together to create this this big picture. I think if you see someone being able to think that way, they'll they'll probably be a good product manager. Because you have to go, you have to be constantly interlinking the strategy and what you're trying to achieve and your goal and who are you serving, who's your customer, what is motivating them to then the details of a specific functionality within a feature <laughs> <laughs> that you're talking with the team about or with yeah. the designers about, you have to be able to, to switch. Yeah. Is there any way for someone to learn or develop that skill? Or is that just something you have to inherently have? I don't know. I'm, I'm usually biased. I, I don't believe that you are just born with something and then you can, you'll never get it if you're not born with it. I think there are ways that you can train it. Um, personally, I've just been like that forever. So it's hard for me to say how you could train it, but I'm sure there's a way, um, in some of the courses that I've done, a lot of the practice is going through a full process of developing a new product. And so you go from the very high level market analysis, trying to find an, a strategic opportunity down to the details of sketching wireframes and doing user interviews. And I think if you go through that process enough, you can learn how to think at the different stages. So even mm. if it does not come naturally to you, you can learn what questions you should be asking yourself 
depending what what you're working on and what stage you're at. Mm, that's great. Okay, so thinking about actually the full process brings me to something else. Um, I've worked with some PMs that have, uh, how would I say, always kind of had more structure in place versus, you know, like they always came in and the game was already built and they like just needed to scale it or X, Y, Z. Um, do you feel like there is a different set of skills or traits that are required for like, you know, that very early prototyping, like going from zero to one versus, you know, going from one to a hundred or a hundred to 10,000, um, you know, are, are there different skills and things that you need to be able to do at those different stages as a PM? Yeah, I think there are different skills. There's a lot of interchangeable skills. Uh, I do think that there are specific skills depending on the maturity of the product. More than that, though, I think it's important to have a product manager that is passionate for what they're trying to achieve and what drives them to feel happy, satisfied that you've achieved a great thing. Um, it, it comes down to personal core motivations, I think, because the same product, the product manager who jumps out of bed and wants to start from this blank slate doesn't mind that the results may be a year from now to understand whether they've been truly su successful or not <laughs> and just be ready to to fail massively over and over again because experimentation at that early stage you can do some but it's not like when you have this fully fledged product that you can just do very quick a b tests on every week and so i think that motivation versus the motivation of a product manager who is working with an existing product and just seeing that one percent achieving that one percent just drives them to yeah, just to feel satisfied that they've made a huge impact. And that's what they want. They, like, they want that 1% plus that 1% plus that 1%. And yeah, that product manager who wants to start with the, with the blank slate and do something that's just completely new and on a massive scale, that person won't feel motivated trying to increase that 1% and vice versa. And there are many more, I think, different stages that you can work in. But these are the two ends of the spectrum that I can think about. And yeah, I think overall you have to match that or else I, I, the product manager might get burnt <laughs> out or not enjoy their work and then they'll leave and find another product to work on. Yeah, I, I know for me, I've personally found that, and maybe this is the entrepreneurial spirit in me, but I really thrive in the chaos of that like early stage product where just things are just completely changing every single day. Um, but then once you get to that scale phase, if an idea for a feature or something isn't, doesn't have like a good probability of generating like 20 to 50% like gains to me, I'm like, well, what's the point? Um, and that's the phase where I think having somebody with that more mindset of a 1% or 5% gain, which mind you are, is very key. Like you get, uh, 20 of those 5% gains and you've doubled your, you know, impact or whatever your features, but, um, yeah, so I, I love that. Yeah. And just to add on, I've seen it in practice. I used to work with a product manager where that's what motivated him that deeply in his core. And he was the most focused 
effective product manager I've ever worked with with a mature product because he was so driven to do that 1% impact. I was very different. I'd be happy, but I wanted, like you were saying, just this massive, more massive change. Um, but yeah, it just made him amazing as a product manager and still being very successful because that's where he thrives. That's amazing. Um, cool. For, let's say like newer stage startups or, or game teams, like at what point do you actually need a project manager? When, you, when should you be thinking about hiring? Hmm. So I actually believe that teams can do without a product manager, really. Because what a product manager does, if everyone on the team, or at least a few people on the team that have different roles, um, could be an engineer, it could be a designer, whoever, whoever they are, if you have the product management mindset, you don't need really a specific product manager because you might be doing the steps or you could have a product manager or a game director that's part-time on the project, uh, hands reach, providing high-level steps that they should be going through and best practices. So I think if there's a startup out there, I wouldn't expect them to need a product manager very, <laughs> very early stage if they have that mindset. But if it's a team that is not comfortable with the product process and needs some coaching on what steps to go through and how to think and what to look for. Um, for example, the soft launch stage, you definitely want people thinking in a product way on the different um, metrics that you should be evaluating, the different steps to evaluate those metrics. And so in those cases, I think it's helpful to have a product manager on a team to, to share that knowledge. But if you already have it, I don't think one is necessary. Mm, interesting. And... Part of my role in a team um, as a, just a product manager in general, what drives me is, try, is always trying to coach the team so I'm not needed. The less a product manager is needed on the team and the more autonomous they are without you, you've done a great job. <laughs> I love it. Um, thinking a little bit about hiring product managers, like how would you go about finding, hiring, and onboarding a product manager? Hard. <laughs> yeah, it's quite, I think well, it's very difficult. I, I ask because I see so many, like, companies are looking for, you know, game product managers right now. Um, so I, I'm curious if there's a, a good way to go about doing so. I can explain what I do in my day-to-day. -day, and then I can explain what I know another product manager um, who works in a very big game company does in, in their day-to-day. So yeah. my friend, well, what she does is mostly work on spreadsheets, um, calculating and forecasting the P&L and helping prioritize what part of the product needs to be worked on. But they're, they're essentially accountable for that massive spreadsheet and forecasting. In my role, I don't do forecasting here at Hutch. We have very intelligent people who are specialized in this, doing the forecasting. And I need to drive um, with the game director. Um, he's ultimately accountable for the, for the PNL. We need to drive what the roadmap is going to look like, the live content, how to improve the game and what's our strategy, what are we focusing on to improve the game performance. And then I wear multiple hats. I do game design. I help out with UX design. I work at a strategy level. I 
design features. I work with the game designers. We refine them with the whole team. I participate in the development process, just supporting the understanding of, of what we're building. Um, I work with the data analysts to, on, to validate our A-B tests and measure the success of what we released so that we can iterate quickly. I also speak with the community, um, doing ad hoc user interviews and just trying to understand why they play our game. So I, I wear all of these hats in my day. And we just have very completely different different roles. Because if you ask me to do a forecasting spreadsheet, I struggle personally. <laughs> so I yeah. think, yeah, like with, with just those two examples in two companies, I think that shows why it's so hard to hire a product manager. Because if we'd get, we couldn't get candidates who would be perfect for the company that she works in, but it's just not what we need. And mm -hmm. it's, the concepts are just very different across companies. Yeah. Is it even possible to calculate and forecast the PNL in a spreadsheet? Like, how, how would you go about doing that for a live game? Oh, it's possible with extremely intelligent modeling <laughs> data analysts. <laughs> it's not bulletproof. <laughs> you can get you can get a good idea. Yeah. Um, cool. Um, I had a few questions in relation to the things that you do, and then we'll talk a little bit about if it's even possible to do some sort of technical test. Um, you Here know, live, you're going to test me. Oh, I, I don't have any technical tests, but yeah, I mean, we could come up with one, you know, <laughs> look for some, some uh, dummy was, trick questions. <laughs> I'm not prepared for this. I didn't study. <laughs> the be the, the best podcast ever. Um, so you talk about, you know, your day-to-day -day of defining the roadmap and live content and stuff. Like, what's your typical process for going about and doing that? Like, I think a lot of, you know, PMs have to do that or are just assigned to that. But I, I don't know that anyone really knows the best way to go about, you know, defining the roadmap and figuring out the live content. So yeah. well, what's your process? I'll, I'll split them out um, because they're different. And in all of this, I'm collaborating with the game director because sure. ultimately he's he's accountable for the vision and the strategy of the product. I'm more at that high level. I'm more of a collaborator rather than um, being accountable for it. So in terms of the roadmap for the game, uh, it's very important to have a super clear strategy for what what are the main problems you need to you need to um, improve for your game and what metrics are going to are you going to try to improve specifically because it's very different to say you're going to try to improve day three retention versus day 90 retention or day 200 retention whatever it is so yeah first start with very clear objectives of what you're trying to accomplish and then you do a process of well, just why called discovery um you're understanding the market, you're doing competitive analysis, you're understanding your players, you play your game a lot to feel what your players are feeling. You think about, I, I, you ideate within the company with friends, whoever it is, like ideas can come from anywhere on how are we going to improve these metrics that we've selected that are very important. And from all of that, you'll just have a lot of ideas that then you can filter through. Um, there are different ways that you can prioritize some of them are more gut-based than others. You can, if you have an idea and you have a good estimation process within the team, you can estimate high level, all of these different possibilities, and you can 
Um, you can prioritize based on ROI, for example. So it, it really depends on what the internal process is as well, on how, how do you achieve the com comparability to help you prioritize. And then you're also, you're not only looking at the game, but also looking at your live ops. You could be building live ops tools and understanding what are the pain points that our designers face uh, within the team, what's making our release process slower, do we have technical debt that we should be addressing to make the game faster, for example, um, to make it easier to implement new functionality into the game. So you have to look at all of these different parameters. And then you'll find out, <laughs> you'll find out the prioritization of what you should be focusing on first. And one of it, circling back to the strategy, the strategy is one of the main points as to how you do this prioritization. If it doesn't help you reach the metrics that you've defined as strategic to improve, then you should be thinking very hard why it's even on the table as a possibility. Mm. Yeah. And then in terms of the live ops, um, the live ops calendar, it's always about how, how can you make the game more enjoyable for players? Um, how can you increase the monetization of your, of your live ops calendar? And by tying all of these things together, looking at your calendar, how, how long does it take to design this piece of content? And then how much, how much money can we make from it? And you can also start applying Roy to all of these different um, design steps in your live calendar. That's where the tooling will help you optimize. And you just try to understand also the intensity of the different live ops formats and plan out like this huge intensity content should be spaced out. How much do we want to be to be spaced out? What's the depth of your game? Um, what's the reward system? I, <laughs> it depends. <laughs> But once you have um, once you have these objectives, high level, you can you can create what you like your your live ops calendar to be, and what tooling you need in order to achieve it. So you have to kind of go beyond what you have right now, and then also build the tooling to help you get there. Yeah. Okay. I have a ton of questions on both of these <laughs> subjects, but um, you mentioned two core things with live ops of like, how can you make the game more enjoyable and how can you improve the monetization? A lot of people that I've talked to have kind of felt like those two things are polar opposite of like, you can't make the game more enjoyable while improving monetization. So I'm curious, how do you go about doing those two potentially opposite goals? They call them opposite. I don't know that I would, but I've heard them called that way by other people. So, um, if players are having fun, then they'll want to spend money to have even more fun. So I think it's a lot about how do you balance difficulty against rewards? Is there a way that you can maintain a pattern of difficulty so that they feel that the effort level to get a certain reward maintains stable across the different mm. types of content and um, scarcity of the reward that they're getting? And oh, I, I have to understand the actual game design to talk more in, in specifics. There's just understanding how does your econ game economy work? What are the different rewards that you can give out? How much effort do players have to invest in order to get that reward? Is it multiplayer? Is it PVP? Is it PVE? Um, how do you balance the difficulty? 
I'm sorry, but it's very hard to give a specific answer um, without speaking about a particular game. Well, let's let's pick a game. What's a game that you play that's not your game? Because we won't go into those KPIs. But what do you play? What do you play outside? <gasps> what do I play outside? I play Rise of Cultures right now. All I'm right. terrible with names, so I'm going to have to look at my phone to see what games I am playing. <laughs> um, I play Colorful Stage, which is kind of a beat stars, but way harder. And I'm mm. also currently playing Skyweaver. Yeah. So of this uh, super hard beat star game, mm-hmm. um, as you know, think about it from a player perspective, but also with your PM hat on, like, what would you do to make the game more enjoyable? Right. I see. I see. Now, this is a technical test. You're putting me on the spot for this technical test. Yeah. Um, I personally don't think I'm the audience that they're targeting for the game. I think they're targeting an audience that likes sort of Japanese music, Japanese mm. electronic music a lot. Um, so it's very hyper, the game. And so I, I easily just get burnt out of all of these high intensity, high BPM music that I'm trying to keep up with, with, um, with the rhythm. Yep. So... I honestly really like the monetization of, of Beatstar in a way where each time I'm playing a song, I feel like I'm making progress towards getting another song. And that's what I'm missing in this game that I'm playing because mm. I spent about an hour on the weekend um, playing it and I left the game feeling like I made no progression. And so if they just gave me, even if it's an achievement, or just a little tracker that, depending on the number of songs that I'm playing, I'm getting a little bit closer just by engaging, not particularly winning, but just engaging is getting me somewhere. I think it would just make it better. And I think that's, that's something that a lot of games can do. It's, do you reward engagement or do you reward winning? Mm. And sometimes just reward engagement because the player will be having fun with your product and you get get them sticking around for longer maybe eventually they'll feel like monetizing if it's not even if it's not early on in the game but just keep them having fun and maybe one day they'll pay Uh so this actually brings me to a topic which we've talked about before um and and this is almost the idea of the depth of mastery of content in a game can lead to amazing retention but if it's too deep or the mastery is too hard it can actually cause players to churn or make it too difficult for new players to come in and what i mean by that is like uh take you know league of legends like the ranked mode like as a new player i can't imagine trying to come in and learn all the champions and all the things that are in there um fortnite you know their big differentiator was building but after a while building got to be such a core part of it where like if you couldn't keep up with this massive building and stuff that's going on there like you just got outmatched and i think that led to churning and then you know they did the live ops month where they had no building and a whole bunch of new players came or old players or whatever you know came back into the game and now they have the no build mode um just like league of legends 
they have the ARAM mode where like, if you don't want the stress of all the things, you just kind of go to this chaotic, you know, no stress, uh, mode that you can play in and stuff. Um, you know, do you think that, you know, this game, the <laughs> beat stars on speed, um, which has this high mastery cap, you know, could learn a lesson there, like, you know, have like a easy mode or like once a week they release a song that's like a, a low skill cap or, you know, it's less about just hitting the notes perfectly. And it's more about like how you hit them, maybe like the, um, the style and the feel of music. So I, I don't know if you play music at all, but like, it's not just about like hitting things as hard as you can or as fast as you can about it's like the way that you play them, the way that you strum the cello or, you know, the guitar or whatever. Um, so there's a lot more that goes into those kind of things. So do you think something like that, you know, could engage the audience or is it strictly just like you're the wrong audience and they're just really targeting these people that are like hyper energetic? Well, the game doesn't block you from playing hard mode. And mm -hmm. I'm the type of player that if there's a hard mode, I'm going to want to play it. And I think what happened is I just got thrown into the deep end. And so I can't win. And now when I go to the easy mode, I just feel that I'm not very good. And so I don't want to play easy mode because of the label it puts on me as a player. It's just this behavioral, behavioral psychology that's, that's going on. But I think this is exactly why making games is hard. And before I got into the game industry, I've always played a lot of games. I used to think, ah, oh, how hard can it be? And then I joined the industry and, oh yeah, gosh, it's very, very hard. Because you have to balance the, the depth of mastery, the elder game, having a nice 2 to get the player comfortable and into the game. You also need depth, depth of spend. And so how do you do all of these things when creating a game? It's extremely difficult. But yes, I, I agree that the depth of mastery has to be, well, has to be, ideally is introduced, um, depending on the game genre, is introduced in a soft way so that you just don't throw the player into the deep end of having to know everything at once. And I think that's where a lot of just improving your fatui and how do you unlock the game over time with the player's engagement and their progression so that they don't have access to everything at once. You just take them through that journey and do a lot of A-B testing to find out what's that journey that has the, the, best, the best outcomes for the product. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Cool. Um, now, thinking about this game, how would you improve the monetization? Or I guess, well, first off, how do they do monetization in this, uh, this game? It has a lot of features. I haven't fully figured it out. Apart from, <laughs> you can buy songs. You can go into the store, you can buy songs, and then because you're playing with a band, you can choose what band you want to start with. They have covers of songs, so you can buy the originals, or you can buy covers from the different bands. Um, mm. Or you can, I think you can also, I don't remember if we have some loot boxes, but they probably do. Most games have some kind of loot box. So. <laughs> Yeah, um, it, make, it gives you more um, options of music to play with. So again, very similar to, to BeatStar. Um, you're having fun. You get tired of the songs that you're playing. You want to go and buy new songs to get new, new challenges and trying to figure out um, how the different rhythms work so that you can get your best high score. Yeah. 
So how would you improve that monetization then? <laughs> well, it's hard to explain because I can't, I'm not motivated to spend. And I think what's the wrong answer. You failed the question. <laughs> <laughs> it also, it actually also happened to me on, on BeatStar and it happens on the majority of mobile games that I get highly engaged with, but then I don't spend is that it doesn't make me feel that if I spend, I don't feel it's going to be long lasting. It's going to make a difference. And I'm actually quite a cautious spender. I don't spend quite mm. a lot. I only spend when I feel I'm going to get a good return. I apply my products manager um, thought <laughs> when thinking about <laughs> the, the spends that I make. And yeah, I think that's, for example, with BeatStar um, and with this game as well, I could buy a song, but then I play that song. And then what? That's, that's five pounds for a song. It's quite expensive. I can buy See, a coffee and a The answer off. we were looking for was a Web3 game where you can buy it oh, as an NFT and then resell the game. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not serious there, but, you know, could have gone with it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, why do you think it's five pounds for a song? Because you get the song forever? Like, do you think that maybe having some sort of, like, limited mode where you get to like play this song for a short period of time or like cheaper versions of songs or things or is it really all just like all this ideation and then testing an iteration testing an iteration again it comes down with a lot of who are you as a product manager and i like doing upfront analysis but sometimes the time you spend doing the analysis, if you can get it out the door in a sprint, then to start somewhere and, and iterate, validate, see what, what players do when it's out there. Um, A-B test a lot, like different price points when you're releasing something new and, and see what consequence that has in the metrics. I have mm -hmm. been proven wrong so many times by A-B test <laughs> where everyone in the room thought it was, this was the best idea ever this was going to completely change the early retention metrics. It was going to, it was just going to deliver the whole strategy in a single feature. And then we released it and nothing happened, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is why it's so important to just develop quick. Um, here at Hutch, we follow a lot the lean methodology, develop quick, get it out quick, validate, and then use that data to continuously improve and like 80, 20 rule. Don't try to get it to 100, get it to a mm -hmm. place where it delivers the value. The bells and whistles can come later. So just deliver what you need to test it and see the value. And then if it works later on, you can add the bells and whistles. Players usually don't mind as long as it's not buggy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so going back to hiring PMs, now that I've asked you some, some questions and things, do you think that asking, you know, questions like that, like taking them into a real world scenario as much as possible. And then just like listening to their thought process is a good way to vet someone or see like, Hey, they have the potential to be able to do X, Y, and Z or. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You want to skills can be taught and just ways of working. Um, knowing to do certain processes and whatnot, you can, you can teach someone a skill, but it's very difficult to change how they think and what's mm -hmm. their thought process and what's their logic. And so 
having those conversations with PMs where it's more of a, yeah, it's a conversation more than an interview where you ask a lot of questions and you try to understand how do they think like faced with some faced with an unexpected problem, what process, what steps are they telling you that they're going through in their mind in order to not come to a final answer, but come to a hypothesis to then yeah. go and check. I love that. Are there any other sorts of tests or interviews that you think you should do or not do when looking for a PM? I think a, a simple um, test of probability is usually a good one for a product manager. And uh, something that I love my for my interview here at Hatch is that they have um, a base builder game. So it's a spreadsheet game of trying to optimize how you're building a base. And it tells you <laughs> quite a lot about how a product manager thinks by putting them within a, a gaming structure and seeing how they're solving the puzzle. Mm. I love that. But did I did I pass the test? I feel I feel I may have failed. I don't know, Tom. What do you think? No, the answer was actually iterate and test everything, so you passed. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> because I too am probably wrong, you know, ninety percent of the time on things. So <laughs> you never know until you test. Yeah, definitely. Um, cool. Well, uh, if you're okay with it, I'd love to spend the last like you know eight minutes just talking about live on cadence, revenue goals and stuff, because I think this is something that a lot of gaming product managers do face, at least with uh, live games. Um, so I'm curious, like, how do you go about setting a live ops cadence for a game? And kind of what I mean by that is there's a really great article out there by Harshal about um, Homescapes is a masterclass in live ops. And it talks about how Homescapes is really designed and they, they looked at player behavior and they saw that, well, players really don't have a lot of time during the week. And they're mostly, you know, women that are 35 plus or, or whatever. I don't know what they actually are, um, but they don't have a lot of time during the week. They maybe log in for like a game or two and then they log off. They don't have time. Um, and then on the weekends, they've got a lot more time. And so Homescapes basically like has five different events that are running at any given time. And they kind of cater throughout the week. Um, and so like Monday through Thursday, there are these really easy events where like, if you log in and you play a game or two, you get some pretty cool, you know, decent, nice rewards. It's like, well, you might as well log in and do that. Otherwise you're just kind of leaving it on the table. But then Friday, Saturday hit, and they've got these really intensive monetization oriented events where there's like really sweet prizes at the end of them, but you've got to win like 10 games in a row. Um, and you know, the pressure to do that spending in match three really intensifies when you're on game nine or game 10 and you only have like one move left to you know blow up everything and win it and if you give up and lose you have to start all over again from game one and work your way back up um and so high pressure high reward versus the rest of the week it's kind of low pressure low reward kind of uh things that are kind of blended together um, but I think what really struck me there is they base that on existing player behaviors of like, how much time do they have to actually play this game on each particular day? And they design their live ops according to that. So I'm curious, you talked a little bit about cadence in the sense of intensity of events where you said you shouldn't have two really, really intense events, you know, one right after the other, cause you might burn out your players, but 
how do you think about designing the optimal cadence of like how often should you have those super intense events and when should you have them you know the great old answer test (laughs) 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 because i don't think there are golden rules um should you not have two overlapping high intensity events maybe you should it depends on who are your players um, have you done it before? Have you actually measured and see if it has cannibalization impacts, if it affects the the engagement metrics? Maybe your game is just so hardcore that players will love it because they have to be playing. There's so much to do in your game and high stakes in different in different areas. They have to think about, okay, where am I going to invest? Which one do I have the best odds to win? How can I improve my hand in order to to reach the, for example, the higher the higher, how do you call it on the leaderboard, higher positions on on the leaderboard? So until you try it and you get to know your players, I think, yeah, setting a rule without having tried it first can be you can be missing an opportunity, because maybe it just increases um, your game's revenue by doing that. So. I'm going to push back here a little bit. Okay. And I'm going to okay. ask you a question and say, what things or what times shouldn't you test something? Like, when is it bad? So here's an example of when I saw testing go awry. So uh, a good buddy of mine had a game that they had launched. It's been a while now, but at this point in time, it was fairly recent. Um, doing great. It was like 300,000 daily active users, 44 cent ARP DAO and growing, doing amazing. And they continued to test and improve the game and whatnot. But what actually was happening behind the scenes is they were doing live ops and a lot of the live ops and the monetization was actually coming from special offers. Um, And they were in a sense giving away too much content because they were doing these tests that kept pushing them to like more and more special offers and players stopped buying the, you know, baseline content and kept waiting for like the big deal offers and waiting more and more. Um, and then they were kind of like stuck in this loop and eventually they decided to try to do a test where they like get rid of those offers and let your, at least really bring them back, bring them in to try to get back to something that's stable. Well, they got back to stable, but they lost tens of thousands of spending players and like their revenue was just wiped out effectively. Um, like still doing decent, but nowhere near where they were. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm curious, like, are there any times when you really need to think very cautiously about what you're testing and how you're designing those tests for? Um, oh, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's about risk measure balance, measuring the risk of the test you're thinking about running versus the value of what you'll learn from it. Um, for example, we're, we're currently redesigning the UX of the store in the game. And for us to, we initially set out that we wanted to AB test it, but then after some conversations with the, with the complete team, um, the engineers, QA design, we actually realized that the cost of running the AB test for technical reasons, it was just so high that no matter what learnings we got, it was very, it's going to be extremely difficult for the test to have been worth it. And so we decided not to A-B test. Um, so similarly, you have to 
understand if you're if you're testing against a behavior that's already so ingrained within players or so mm -hmm. ingrained within why they spend you have to be quite cautious in just trying to analyze what are we trying to learn from it and are the learnings um is the value of the learnings higher than the risk of the potential negatives and then you also have ways that you can manage the risk if it's a very risky test you can have a smaller percentage in the experimental cohort um, you can mm -hmm. only allow players to enter that experimental cohort until it reaches the minimum number that you need for statistical confidence and then you close it and you keep running the test so there are also ways that you can mitigate but yeah. sometimes it's just not worth it Makes sense. Yeah, I, I only asked because you brought up, well, why why wouldn't you do two high-intensity events together? And I was just curious, well, could that actually cause a bunch of players to get angry and churn? And, you know, then there's the balance of what's our risk of us losing these players or whatnot? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I was speaking from my personal, personal experience. Yeah. And uh, as well, in terms of who are your players, what are their behaviors, and being extremely data-driven data before running your experiments. Um, I, the question I ask is, how big is your team? Because you can have teams <laughs> developing mobile games that have, I don't know, 150, 200 people more. And then yeah. you have teams developing mobile games, there are 20 people. Three you have, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you have one game designer, you have one data analyst, the the amount of data that you'd need to analyze to find these learnings sometimes just shots on goal because yeah. you don't have that number of people to to rely on that makes a lot of sense well maria i know we're pretty much out of time here i feel like i keep talking for another hour or so uh, but uh we are on the mastering retention podcast so i always like to ask you know what's one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years to increase uh, player retention like how do you keep your players engaged and playing for longer I knew you were going to ask this, and I had I had an answer ready. But I've already used my answer, so I'll have to reuse it. Um, <laughs> it's just something that I've been learning. I've only this is the first time I'm working as a product manager on the game, but across any product I've worked on, and even speaking with a lot of people and looking at how other games um, operate within Hutch, I think there's something that's very critical, and it's to know your strategy, because. Ideas are in abundance. Ideas can come from anywhere. And unless you have a defined anchor that only gets moved when it's very purposeful to move, you can get a bit lost and just be all over the place. And then you're not trying to iterate enough in achieving a goal. Um, so if you, if you have a strategy and you stick to it and you let it guide you, you'll be trying to do enough experiments and improvements in order to reach a valuable result. And that could be to increase retention. I love it. Always start with the problem, deeply understand the problem, and then figure out from there. Um, there's actually a talk by, he was like the game director at Supercell on the Clash of Clans. And he did, gave this amazing talk about how they focused on the problems, went through and added some things, which ultimately led to the successful launch of their gold pass. But had they not focused on the problems and fixed some underlying things, the gold pass never would have worked. So mm -hmm. if you haven't seen that talk, go find it and listen to it. But uh, Maria, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. If people do have any you know, questions or anything, is there a good way for them to get in contact with you? Yeah, just send me a message on LinkedIn. Um, 
add me a connection invite. I'm on Twitter, but I don't really have any DMs open. So, <laughs> yep, I'm old school. <laughs> Just contact me on LinkedIn. I'm always very happy to talk about product management and to connect. Love it. Well, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for the invite.